Before we start this first post-election podcast, I want to tell you that you're invited to a special conversation that we're having next Tuesday night, November 10th at 7 p.m. It's our Connecticut Mirror 2020 election recap called, and I think this title is good, What Just Happened? I'll be joined by my friends Leah wright Rigger, a professor at Harvard's Kennedy School, and award-winning columnist Susan Bigelow. You can sign up for this free virtual event sponsored by the League of Women Voters by going to ctmirror.org events. We hope to see you there. All right, here's the show. This is Steady Habits, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. It's where we take a look at life here in the land of steady habits, what works, what doesn't, and how to make things work just a little bit better. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining me. With all the attention paid to the closely contested presidential race, you may have missed that Connecticut's state legislature just got a lot more Democratic. It looks likely at this moment the Democrats will hold a 24 to 12 edge in the state Senate and a whopping 98 to 53 margin in the state House. And that's going to make this guy's job pretty interesting. My name is Matt Ritter uh, from Hartford. I am currently the House Majority Leader and hopefully Speaker of the House in, in January of 2021. I talked to Ritter about some of the issues he'll have to grapple with, the possibility of a public option bill, marijuana legalization, zoning reform, and a big one after this election, early voting. But first, I asked him what exactly led to this good night for House Democrats. A couple things. Um, I go back four years ago, okay? The election of, of President Trump had one, in my opinion, good thing for the state of Connecticut. It got some people to run for office that otherwise would not have run. It motivated them to run in 2018 and now in 2020. And fortunately for, for the House Democratic Caucus, these candidates were so motivated that we had four of them ran two years ago, fell short by, say, 100 votes or less, ran this time, and four of the five of them won. That's real determination to lose in what was a blue wave, quote unquote, two years ago and come back and try again. So the quality of candidate was really, really good for us in these very tough purple districts. We had the right people at the right time. The other reason was, you're right, Donald Trump was on the ballot. I don't deny that, right? It increased turnout. Um, he was very unpopular in certain districts, but I would add you, he was very popular in other places. We thought Eastern Connecticut had some seats that we could win. We got blown out there. So I think that it probably helped us more than it hurt. I wouldn't deny that. But I go back to these quality candidates and some of them having the gumption to go right back at it. That made them really, really good because they had already done it two years ago. What a big difference to have those people as sort of your liftoff. A, a criticism of the Democratic Party, though, in this election cycle, not just at the state legislative level in, in Connecticut, is so many people were running on the idea that Donald Trump is a terrible president. Donald Trump is somebody that you can't possibly have an office again. And all of the other people who are running on the Republican ticket are associating with Donald Trump. To an awful lot of people, that doesn't sound like a, a very positive message. It just sounds like a no Donald Trump message. Let me, let me tell you what I think our candidates ran on, which is when it comes to issues that have been long settled in Connecticut um, or that have long been understood to be things we have not completely solved, we are the modern party that I think reflects the general social and economic feelings of the state of Connecticut. Not every pocket, I admit that, but a lot of these social issues that the that this the Republican caucus in the General Assembly is far more conservative than when I started. You know, they have this right wing caucus that sued, of course, that masks are unconstitutional and shouldn't be worn. Uh, don't believe in vaccinations. 
I don't believe that we should have any gun regulation and restriction, file amendments on abortion issues. That's not the party of John McKinney and Larry Cafaro and Jody Rell. And so in the, as, as time has gone on, people, we've been able to really point out and highlight those social issues. Um, we also have been criticized, I think, in some ends on, 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 on winning back some of these working class, middle class families. And I feel very passionate about that, that if we, we have to figure out a way to talk better about that. And you know what? That might be the same problem Joe Biden's having right now, too. Hmm. You yeah. know, on the, on the flip side, uh, an awful lot of Republicans went into these races and they were running on a couple things. One, the police accountability bill that you passed, which certainly an awful lot of police and police unions are not happy about. And a lot of people who support the police are not happy about that didn't for Republicans have quite as much traction as they would have hoped. There's another issue I want to get to, too, that the Connecticut Mirror has been covering an awful lot. But let's talk about that, about the police accountability bill. What do you think stopped that from being the issue that Republicans thought it was going to be? And how do you now govern going forward, understanding that there are an awful lot of people in the state who are pretty riled up about that piece of legislation? Yeah, it, it, it defeated one person in particular in our caucus, which was Kate Rotella out in Stonington, North Stonington, who is a, a dear, dear, dear friend. And, uh, you know, a cop ran against her and was able to win. We actually elected a police officer on the Democratic side, by the way, from Waterbury. Look, I said this on the House floor. That bill was negotiated in a bipartisan way almost to the very end. And there was two sticking points. There was use of force and this issue of qualified immunity. I still think the qualified immunity is widely misunderstood. The use of force, I think we've heard from both chairs, Senator Winfield and Representative Stastrom, that they are willing to sit down again. Look, what I would say is, given what has happened in this country, given what happened this past summer in Minneapolis and beyond and in Louisville, there are just moments where the bill may seem revolutionary in its concept because it is so new, but it is so necessary. At the same time, nobody is saying, hey, we'll sit down and get it right. I can assure you that we will meet. I know the Judiciary Committee leaders will meet with all the same people they met with. And we've actually gotten some decent suggestions from folks that no one finds objectionable. So that bill will not go away. I agree with you. But I think our job is to better explain it. And I don't think that given special session, COVID, a presidential election and the emotion around it, we had a chance to do it. Um, but I was surprised. Um, at what happened in Stonington, North Stonington, and uh, but it was no question that was the deciding issue out there. Yeah. With a with a bigger majority, is there an expectation that you and your caucus will try to go further with police accountability legislation than you have in the past? I think we feel pretty good about the bill we've passed. So I could see changes to it and tweaks, but I, I don't. I think that that was a, a national leader in some of the conversations. Um, so I don't know what further means, but I think there'll be further discussions about it, John. Yeah. Do, do you have concerns that the Democratic Party, not just in Connecticut, but across the country, has seemingly had a rift with police and police unions? No, because you know what I'm going to remind them of? Who wants to take away collective bargaining rights? OK, so I will remind them that I've seen the amendments that have been filed on these bills that would change both the state process and the municipal process for collective bargaining, how you consider wages. So at the end of the day, we may have disagreed on this one bill, but the folks who are going to support your right to collectively bargain so that you can earn benefits for doing very risky jobs have consistently and only been the Democratic Party. And as a matter of fact, I can't wait to go through those amendments again, because it's sort of interesting, right? That's why I think traditionally they have been Democratic allies, and I think they'll stay under the tent. But 
no one, no piece of legislation is ever perfect and untouchable. Um, standards change and they evolve. But I think we will find a way to get this right and make some changes and modifications that everybody thinks are reasonable and at the same time still have a national leader in legislation. Another issue that Republicans were bringing up, especially in some suburban communities, southwestern Connecticut, but a lot of other places, is zoning and affordable housing. It's something that the Connecticut Mirror has been reporting on extensively. It's something that is a systemic problem here in Connecticut. I think an awful lot of people take a look at it and see that. But in many affluent suburbs, they say, we don't want Hartford, quote unquote, coming in and telling us what to do with our zoning. How do you see tackling that particular issue, given the fact that so much of the low-income housing in the state of Connecticut is concentrated in just a few places, and so many suburbs just don't have anywhere near enough affordable housing? So I come at this from an interesting perspective, um, given my, what my grandparents did um, in the 1960s, um, when even Windsor and Bloomfield, which are now so racially diverse, were all white. And my, my grandmother um, got some some of the, the business owners of the big insurance companies to give a lot of money so they could create this, this fund and they would go buy, my grandmother and my grandfather would buy homes and then turn the deed over to African-American families. So to be the first African-American families, for example, on Applewood Road in Bloomfield with the Myers family. And so I met these people growing up. I'd go to those houses and hear the stories about how in the 1960s, 1960s folks, not 1860s, that was a problem. And so we have made some progress, but we have not in others. Look, at the end of the day, you're not going to be able to just change every local zoning law in the state of Connecticut because you won't have the votes to do it. We need to, we need to, we've tried incentivizing, John, in the past. We need to look at that again. But there's also what I would say to some towns is the answer is always no. There are some reasonable changes that I don't think um, most people object to. I also have in my delegation in Hartford, Representative McGee, who chairs housing, and Senator McCory, and you know, they remind me, well, we also want to see you know, investment into our neighborhoods in Hartford that we represent, you know, me too, because this is not a panacea and everybody wants to live in rural Connecticut or live in a suburban town, right? So the, the conversation is a little more nuanced than we should just, the suburbs need to do more, everyone should move out there because not everybody wants to move out there. And so this will be the toughest bill to draft and negotiate, I think next year or one of them, because it, it's complicated, it's multi-layered, but I come at it from an angle of this. My upbringing in Hartford, was, was, was unique in the sense that I got to go to an elementary school that was one of the most racially diverse and most socioeconomic diverse schools in the state of Connecticut. And I went to Colby College on the bookend, okay? So I know that my life has been made better by meeting people of different backgrounds. And really, you know, even in my kids' day and age, races with these kids is even less of a factor because there's so much diversity in Hartford of these schools the key is also socioeconomic status and the ability to live with people that are different, who may not have the same economic means, the same religion. I believe that's an important thing. I also know that um, it's going to be a complicated task, but I come in with that perspective and that hope, but I'm reasonable that we got a big fight ahead, but I think there's a way to do it and, um, and also invest in our cities at the same time. But, That's a long-winded answer. Well, no, but it's a, it's a really important issue, and, and this is something that you want to make sure gets on the table during this legislative session. It, it is, and, it, and we can't avoid it. Uh, but I would say, I, I as a legislator, and, and maybe this is why uh, some people could criticize me for this position, but maybe why I'm going to be where I'm going to be, I think, in a few weeks, is everybody sort of throws out these extremes on issues. And some people like to be the most right, the most left on everything. 
I like to think of myself as a problem solver. And I have a lot of caucus members who feel that way, which is I don't care what the panacea bill is that the advocates want. I don't care what, uh, you know, the most restrictive conservatives want. We want to get to a solution. And those are the people that I like to work with is don't come to me and say, if you don't do this, the bill is no good or it's gutted. Sit down with everybody and be open minded. And I am confident, optimistic that if we take that approach and have those meetings before we throw out bills, it will go a long way. See, the problem is when you throw out a bill and you have a hearing that is so drastic and the argument is, well, if I start drastic, it will get watered down over time. So why not start here? You may kill the bill before the public hearing even happens. And that's the risk you run. And I hope that chairs think about that on an issue this sensitive. I, I wonder, though, what it takes to do something like this the right way. Because as you're, as you're talking, I'm thinking about all the things that go into making affordable housing across Connecticut really work. And it's not just, as you say, going to the suburbs and changing zoning laws and telling them they have to have more affordable housing. And it's not just developing more in Hartford. This is going to require investments in transportation. You need to get people where they're supposed to go and get people to jobs. School funding might have to change too. And of course, as you say, urban development, that's a lot to tackle in one in one fell swoop. So how do you think about how you're going to put these things together? Because it's not just one thing you're trying to do here. And that's why it may be a multi-year plan, right? It's engaging municipalities. But you make a good point. I go back to not everybody wants to live in a suburban town. You know, not every family and not every child wants to, you know, people say we've had some great success with open choice, but it doesn't work for everybody, right? I mean, I, I know kids of, of my neighbors who go to a correct school in Avon, right? It takes them an hour to get to school on the bus every day because they go to different stops. That's their choice. But I know my daughter, five years old, would not want to be on a bus for an hour. And I'm going to have to drop her off every day. So all inclusive conversation, very difficult, but we are a better society. We will be a better state. We will better understand one another when we live, work, play, socialize uh, in different groups. And sports is such a great example of that, I think. And I think it can work in society just like it does in sports. It seems increasingly likely that after all the recounts come in, that Joe Biden will be the next president of the United States. That's not a sure thing as we talk, but it is increasingly likely. It's also, it's also very likely that Democrats will not take the Senate, which means that Joe Biden is going to face an awful lot of obstruction. And one of the things that more people talk to me about than anything else is trying to fix our healthcare system. Yeah. Obamacare provided health insurance to a lot of people, but it's insurance that's far too expensive for most people to afford. Connecticut has talked about a public option in the past. And is this a time, Matt Ritter, in which Connecticut has to say, for the next four years, Joe Biden and the Democrats aren't going to get crap done when it comes to changing the way that health insurance is delivered or health care is delivered. We might have to innovate on this level. Yes. And I think you have to have a dual track because the other thing is the Affordable Care Act could be upended in June by the Supreme Court when it the could. decision comes out, right? So I, to me, it's a dual track. You, you, you are hopeful. You are optimistic. You observe what the federal government is doing. I will bother Senator Murphy and Congressman Larson a bunch. But at the same time, you need to move forward at the state level as well. Now, to me, there are two buckets of where this, this public option comes in. We have a public option. It's the exchange. It's just way too expensive, as you mentioned, John. So one of our first goals would be if the federal government will not do it, 
and not subsidize it better so that it's more affordable, would the state be willing to subsidize the exchange to bring down costs? I would be willing to look at that. Absolutely. I know Sean Scanlon talked about that last year. The second bucket where we find problems is small businesses and nonprofits, and they are kind of one and the same. And so what they do is, right, if you, from stories I hear, I own a coffee shop with eight people and the employer goes, I can't afford it. So go on the exchange. Well, the exchange is too unaffordable. There's been talk about looking at the, the, the public, the state pool, state employee pool um, that has a big pool to sort of look at this class that some insurance companies are in that space, um, but a lot are not. Many are not in that zero to 25 or zero to 50 plan. Um, I would be willing to experiment with that. You have to, you would have to see what the fiscal notes are. So you may want to see what the level of, of um, you know, who would actually want to enroll. And so you'd have like a year, I think, to open it up and see what people think. But I'm, I'm willing to look at those things. And if Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell have dinner one night and the mood strikes and we have a whole new system and those things are accomplished, well, then, yeah, you could say in Connecticut, you know what? You know, I would die under its own weight, John, because the federal option or whatever they passed would be far more reasonable and affordable. So I'm game with that. I have no problem with going on a sort of a double barrel approach. But the only concerns I would have at the end of the day is not ignoring the exchange because that's still very important for a lot of people. And number two, it cannot be a blank check from the state of Connecticut, right? We, we have a spending cap. And if you just wrote a blank check, you would crowd out a lot of other spending priorities in Connecticut. So that would be my other worry is to make sure it's affordable, but the state can afford it. But, but, but do you have concerns that clearly the governor has raised before that if you do anything to sidestep the insurers that live and work here in the state, that they are going to get pissed off and they're going to take their ball and go elsewhere. And then you're going to be stuck with 20,000 fewer jobs in Connecticut. I'm mindful of it. Uh, I, you know, I, the Aetna the, the, is in the city of Hartford. Obviously, United Healthcare has a big presence. Harvard Pilgrim does. Uh, I played on the Little League baseball team. So I guess I always own for a couple of years a sponsor in my jersey. But look, no, I think that's silly because, first of all, the exchange is already there. So if you were to subsidize the exchange, I, I don't know how that bothers. Maybe you get more players on the exchange, quite frankly, um, if it can make more sense. It's the small business pool where I guess you could have that argument. But Cigna does not offer plans from zero to 50. The Aetna, maybe, but I do not believe they do in Connecticut. United Health is not in that space. Not that they have a veto right, but it's not exactly the, the big players in Hartford are actually not really in that space anyway. I will say this, the governor will sit down and talk about it. I know he's got ideas, but at the end of the day, the insurance department in Connecticut is very professional and very, very good. They've been left out of some of the bills that I've seen in the past around healthcare, and it's no offense to the comptroller's office, but it's been very one-sided there. Um, I think I could get, I think the governor and some of the companies, if we had both the insurance department and the comptroller's office working together, that may help too, because there's some distrust there and they would both admit that. Any other priorities that you have for this upcoming oh, session? Oh, yeah. Come on. G g g give, me, uh, give me just a few before I let you go. I'll give you two, John. Early voting, right? I mean, all the things we're talking about flow from elections. So we got to make that a constitutional amendment, a priority for 2022 and on the ballot. Um, I don't talk about marijuana because I'm, you know, it's not something that everyone always assumes I get these interviews that, you know, it's like, why is that always? It's not my big issue, but it's silly. It is silly. It's like sports gaming. It's silly. It is time for Connecticut to join other states and legalize marijuana and sports gaming and get with it. I know that's not a platform. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, that, that's the only thing we're talking about, because you and I have talked about affordable housing and health care and education. But what we didn't cover, it makes a lot of sense. And the frustration I hear from people in Connecticut is why are we always behind these other states? 
And so I want to just say to folks, I hear you, we'll get it done. And I will go this far with marijuana, which also upsets people when I say this. I would put on the ballot. If people don't want to vote for it and we still do not have the votes, I don't want to spend my time as Speaker of the House and leadership constantly vote counting marijuana. So what I would say is put that on the ballot, too. And people will say, well, now we're becoming a referendum, you know, an initiative state. No, we're not. Marijuana is unique because that's how every state has done it, except maybe one. So there's something about that issue that has sort of a populist feel and has been done by initiative. It's not going to lead to you know, slippery slope. I hate that argument. So I'd be willing to put that on the ballot, John, I, in 2022. Yeah, yeah the, the, the state that did it legislatively is Vermont, and Vermont did it slowly, right? They first Correct. went to just, it's legal, you can grow your own, and now they're moving into a regulated marketplace. It seems, that seems like a kind of Connecticut way of doing things, right? You take a little step, right. and then you take a little step. That might make a lot of sense, and it's one of the things that allowed it to get done is that it was legislative. It didn't yeah. require the the referendum because look at what happened in Massachusetts and Maine. They did a referendum and immediately people in jobs like yours said, whoa, 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 and they took the bill yeah. and they turned it into something else. I would love to do it. I, I got 98 members, 17 of whom never even been to the Capitol probably. So I got to meet them and see where they're at. But if people just say, I don't want to vote for it, I do think there's enough people in both caucuses who may say, let the voters pick. If it fails, then leave me alone if it passes. But I... I want to get that done. So early voting, health care, um, you know, looking at affordable housing. There's a lot of issues. Election laws are, are, are critical to me. I, I will probably focus more on that than other speakers have in the past. Um, but it's going to be an exciting time. And um, I also, last thought, I also remind myself in the caucus, okay, slow down. We don't even know who the president is. So I'm getting all these calls and questions about things. And I have to remind myself to say, the world moves very quickly in two days or three days, and a lot can change from now until April and May and June. And so I try not to lead, particularly on budgetary items, with conclusions. I'd rather be led to what the facts are that get us to that conclusion. So when people say, are you going to have enough revenue? What are you going to? I don't know. I have no idea. But we'll find out, and we'll make the adjustments accordingly. Matt Ritter, thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Hey, John, this was great. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Matt Ritter is the likely next Speaker of the House. Coming up on a special episode on Monday, I'll sit down with the outgoing House Minority Leader, Themis Clarinus. And remember our Connecticut Mirror 2020 election recap, What Just Happened? I'll be joined by my friends Leah wright Rigger and award-winning columnist Susan Bigelow. You can sign up for this free virtual event next Tuesday, November 10th. It's sponsored by the League of Women Voters. You can go to ctmirror.org slash events. Thanks to Bruce Potterman, Beth Hamilton, and Kyle Constable. George Mastrianos and Dave Swanson provided our steady beats. They were recorded at Legend Studios, Navon, Connecticut. I'm John Dankosky. i got to go rest my voice. I've been up all night for the last couple days. I'm sure you have too. We'll talk to you soon.